Welcome back to Presenting the Past, a podcast series exploring the digitized collections of public radio and television in the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, otherwise known as the AAPB. I'm Christine Becker, Associate Professor in the Department of Film, Television, Theater at the University of Notre Dame and co-host of the Acamedia podcast from the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. The AAPB website features over 66,000 public radio and television items streaming online. And I have to note, that's a new update. The collection has grown by 3,000 items since we started this podcast. And this podcast brings you conversations with the researchers, scholars, educators, and media producers who have used that archival material, and they share their insights about what they have found. Today, the insights you're going to hear about involve the historical and current importance of Latino-Latina public broadcasting in the U.S. And there is so much to hear about that we're going to bring you not one, but two different interview segments that will spread across two parts. So in the first part, I spoke with a group of three participants who were part of a panel for the 2020 Association of Moving Image Archivist Conference that focused on Latino empowerment through public broadcasting. And we basically asked them to bring their panel to our podcast. And then in a second part, we focus in on Radio Balingue the leading Latino public radio network founded in 1976 and have a conversation with the network's founder, Hugo Morales. So we're going to launch in with part one of this episode on Latino empowerment, and you can look for part two separately. I'm excited to introduce my three guests for the first part of this episode, which will focus on Latino, Latina, public media, and empowerment. So we have Dolores Inez Casillas as a professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies and director of the Chicano Studies Institute at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her research focuses on immigrant engagement with U.S. Spanish language and bilingual media. She's the author of Sounds of Belonging, U.S. Spanish Language Radio and Public Advocacy. Welcome to the podcast, Inez. Thank you. We also have Jesus Trevino, who is a television director, author, and creator of Latinopia, a video-driven website showcasing Latino art, cinema, music, theater, literature, and history. During the 60s and 70s, he was a chronicler of the Mexican-American civil rights movement, described in his memoir, Eyewitness of a Filmmaker's Memoir of the Chicano Movement. Welcome to Presenting the Past, Jesus. Terrific to be here. And finally, Gabriela Rivera-Marine is a doctoral student at the University of Florida studying Hispanic linguistics. She was a member of the HACU National Internship Program and worked at the American Archives of Public Broadcasting as one of the curators of the Latino Empowerment Through Public Broadcasting exhibit, which we'll hear a lot more about today. So welcome, Gabriela. Hi, happy to be here. All right, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, including that exhibit. We're going to talk about Latino, Latina radio uh, and television. Let's start, as this is a podcast, let's start with radio. So Inez, you are our resident expert for that. What are some thoughts you have about radio's purpose and its role in this notion of Latino empowerment through public media? I've always been fascinated with radio and equally disappointed and fascinated at how it's often underlooked, actually, by scholars um, in particular. I think that we have really mastered a conversation about the significance of seeing um, communities of color in television representations, even as teachers or role models or as mentors. But I don't think we've lent enough attention to discussing the significance of listening um, and how listening carries, as so many other radio scholars have emphasized, it facilitates a sense of intimacy that's so important, especially for listeners who feel isolated or for listeners who have been much more politically disenfranchised um, or marginalized in our society. A listenership that is largely working class, which can be very socially isolating, 
especially when you think about what kind of shifts working class listeners have. They have graveyard shifts, they have early morning shifts, they have double shifts. Also, I always like to remind students and colleagues and people new to radio when we discuss Spanish language radio, when was the last time you listened to it or you overheard it? And it might have been when you were near a construction site. It might have been the last time you were at a hotel, if there was a little radio at the, at the housekeeping cart, or it might have been at the back of a restaurant. So a lot of times those sounds of Spanish language radio still accompany the listeners, which today are still largely working class. Um, so they're often at work sites. So um, it definitely has always accompanied people to work. And Spanish language radio, bilingual radio, has always had its foundation in rural areas, primarily farm worker communities. So out of the three first Spanish language community radio signals in the United States, the first one was KBBF FM, and that's in Santa Rosa, California. And it broadcasts out of a mobile trailer that it finally moved into a building just within the last five to 10 years, but it was still broadcasting from that same mobile trailer. When I was doing my initial research on this 15 years ago, I had to be careful with all the chickens that were roaming around outside. <laughs> um, and the second one was Radio Bilingue, KSJV, the original radio station out of Fresno. And they went live on July 4th, 1980. And we have a lot of their stations, um, a lot of their programming uh, archived in the AAPB. And we have some programs also from the third radio station, which was KDNA-FM in Granger, Washington, in the Yakima Valley. And you could really point to the agricultural fields. The Yakima were the apples. Fresno is the heart of where the majority of people in the world receive their produce. This is the origins of our dinner salads. And KBBF FM is in Napa Valley, and these are the people responsible for our wine that accompanies our salad in the evening. So what was really phenomenal about these three radio stations is that they purposefully trained farm workers to be radio producers, to be radio hosts, so very much dedicated to the local and the local public. Um, and this was actually during a moment where CPB was having pressured Corporation for Public Broadcasting to be more inclusive. So they actually had a lot of grants that they gave out to small community radio stations so that they could, there were training grants, train women, train uh, more people of color to go into community broadcasting. So out of those three, they're all three on the air today, which is such a significant feat when you think about how ginormous the empire of Spanish language radio is today, a lot of times we associate Univision with television. Well, Univision has now conquered the area of radio. So when you think about how these small radio stations are still on the air despite the rise of commercial uh, Spanish language radio, that's um, a really huge feat. And they're still very, very important. And also, I know one of your areas of interest is uh, immigration on air. Yeah, I really think immigration has been the catalyst for the growth of Spanish language radio. And I think that a lot of people will look at population numbers and say, oh, yeah, of course, community radio is still on the air. And why wouldn't commercial radio be so big? Latino immigration numbers and population numbers continue to grow. 
But we didn't really see this growth until the 1980s. And yes, we can point to policy changes and you know changes in ownership regulation. But the 1980s is when Spanish language radio began really showcasing immigration and their primetime programming. And primetime doesn't necessarily mean the evening as it does for English language viewers. People tune in to Spanish language radio at 4 a.m. That's the hot spot. And that's when people are first getting up, getting ready to go to work or coming home. It's 4 a.m. Whereas in English, it's more the 5, 6 a.m. slot. So immigration became the conversation that drove Spanish language and bilingual radio during this time. Because Spanish language radio already crafts a sense of intimacy with the voice and which then fosters a sense of loyalty with either a host or a program. When it comes to something that is such a sensitive or political topic that's going to hit families and communities such as immigration, this then lends itself to being the natural source um, of information for uh, Spanish-speaking and Latino communities. So, for instance, in the 1980s, mid-1980s, was when we passed the Immigration Reform and Control Act. This was a time when over a million Mexican nationals were given what people refer to as amnesty or citizenship. And this is the time when there was radio stations in Texas that would do Friday night shows with immigration attorneys to try to understand how do we fill out this complicated paperwork for people to achieve amnesty. There's other radio stations that used to broadcast live, quote unquote, on location outside what we, we refer to at that time as INS buildings, immigration nationalization buildings. So quite different from English language radio, where we go to a mall or a new car wash or a debut of a store. These are places where listeners would think, wow, if that radio host is outside there, or if that radio host is delivering this information, then I can trust this sense of information. So Spanish language radio has so many shows that are completely tied to ideas of immigration um, so a lot, I've written a lot about Q&A shows with immigration attorneys. There's also Q&A shows with doctors. And um, La Hora Medica was one of the early shows in KDNA and Granger, Washington. So all these shows with you, you might not think it's immigration related. I mean, of course, with the immigration attorney, you do. But if you listen to these Q&A shows with health doctors, the question isn't, I have this rash or I have this cold or I have this cough. The question is, I was taking this medicine in Mexico six months ago, but now I'm here. And I'm wondering now if I can take this medicine now that I'm in the United States. Um, so there are actually questions that are tied to people who live migrant lives. Um, so that's how I really characterize it as an immigration show. Um, I wonder if you could speak also to the role of grants as well, and, and, and particularly the, the role of women within this conversation. I love looking at these shows during this time, and this is when you see how these small, unfortunately, one-time CPB grants made such a lasting impact. And if you look at shows like Mujer, that was a show out of KDNA-FM, and we do have this show in the AAPB, these were shows, I just heard an episode recently, and I can't tell you how much I love the opening of the show. It's this upbeat kind of jingle, and then a very pleasant sounding female sounding voice that's reminding you that mujer, mujeres es más de la mitad de la población. 
women make up more than half of the population, you know, and then it kind of transitions to this upbeat jingle. Well, we can let our listeners hear what this sounds like right now, thanks to this clip from the AAPB archive. Mujer. Mujer es un programa de información y entrevistas con las que componen más de la mitad del total de la población, las mujeres. Bienvenidos al programa. To have that be the constant opening, like we're going to remind you every single time we have this show that women make up more than half the population. And then they would always highlight a specific woman from the community. So Some of them highlight female musicians. Some of them highlight a female social worker. Some of them highlight a specific principal in the area. So it's this on-air meet and greet that gets kind of introduced to the wider community. And it's produced by a woman. It's hosted by a woman. It features a woman. And it's dedicated to women listeners. And in that way, when I listen to it, yes, I'm listening to an archive. But I really feel like I'm listening to the origins of what radio used to be like for women, right? That it took this like in-your-face, very blatant slogans and shows to kind of get us to where we are today. And those are fascinating insights about the importance of Latino Latino radio and the vital support for it that comes from uh, public funding. And as let's now add pictures to the conversation and learn about early Latino television from Jesus Trevino. So, Jesus, what can you tell us about um, how Latinos got into public television? What's some history behind that relationship? Well, as you know, public television uh, had its birth back in the early 60s. And by the late uh, 60s, Latinos wanted to get involved, but uh, there were very little opportunities for us. And so um, my generation of uh, activists decided that we had to take matters into our own hands and kind of forge uh, a presence on public television. And we did this in a, in a couple of ways. Uh, I was fortunate in, in that in 19, what was it, 68 or so, I was hired by KCET, the public broadcast station in Los Angeles. And I began work there as a uh, PA and worked my way quickly uh, into being associate producer and hosting a, a rather novel television concept uh, called Ahora, which means in Spanish, now. Uh, the idea behind the program was instead of doing uh, a television show by and for Latinos from a television station, they said, what if we were to create a satellite studio in East Los Angeles itself, East Los Angeles being heavily Mexican-American, and, uh, and originating the broadcast from the barrio itself, the community there of, of Mexican-Americans. And so that's what they did. They got a grant from the Ford Foundation to produce 175 live half-hour programs. And we originated the show from a storefront. It was a converted bank, and the bank vault became the control booth, and the front lobby became our studio. And people literally could walk in and did walk in off the street and were seated there. We had a small audience area and they could watch a show being taped before their very eyes. 
And uh, more importantly, having uh, a studio in East Los Angeles allowed us to cover a lot of the events that were going on at the time. And as you know, in the late 60s, it was a very volatile time. It was uh, the beginnings of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement. And so every day there was either a high school walkout to protest inferior education, or there was a community protest about uh, some child being uh, beaten by the school principal or uh, some person being shot in the back by a police officer. I mean, there, there was very controversial issues arising from the community at the time. And by having this live half-hour broadcast uh, Monday through Friday, we were able to cover all those uh, issues and all those events. Uh, and so we did these shows, and for me, what it really taught me was uh, the importance of empowering a community and how media could be utilized to educate and to activate people into taking control of their lives. And uh, a few years later, uh, I stayed on with KCT after uh, the program ended. Uh, the funding ran out, and uh, two or three of us were retained by KCT proper to uh, come on as full-time staff people there. And within a short time, within about a year and a half, two years, I was uh, producing my own television show, kind of uh, my own version of Ahora, which I called Acción Chicano, Chicano Action. And of course, in those days, Chicano was the preferred word that we would use to identify uh, the Mexican-American community. We were, we were kind of fed up with uh, what we saw as Mexican dash or minus American uh, as a nomenclature. And we thought, no, let's call ourselves Chicanos, which was a term that originated in the barrio and that reflected pride in who we were. And I took what I'd learned from uh, Aora and I put it to work there. We had, uh, by then, uh, we were no longer needing to um, utilize the, the big studio cameras. We could do handheld cameras, 16 millimeter, and we went out into the field and we covered uh, community events, uh, local political events going on, protests, but also we had educators on, we had uh, community activists on to represent the different issues that were at work at the time. And so we really used it uh, as a way of mirroring what was going on in, in the community. Uh, we did not limit ourselves to news and public affairs. Uh, some of our shows were cultural in nature. We had art shows, we had music performance shows, we had theater companies come in and do performances. And um, uh, one of the shows that we did was we, we actually didn't limit ourselves to Southern California. Uh, we took a film crew up to Fresno, California to, to cover the work of the United Farm Workers. We took a film crew to El Paso, Texas to cover the La Raza Unida political convention in September of 1972. And, and so uh, we were able to utilize this platform to educate the community and to be, as I said, a mirror to who we were as uh, Latinos. So for context, um, I'm, I'm wondering if you were inspired by the earlier history of Latino radio and then did public media provide the space for you to then kind of enact the, the visions that you had when you heard Latino radio? Well, I think that both radio and video had its real origins in the community. We were responding to the social activism that was going on in our community. 
I think had we not had that, I'm not sure how much we would have done. I got my start with a Super 8 camera on a picket line. And I, you know, I didn't know about filmmaking then. I just knew I had a camera. There was an important event. And the magic for me came when I would film a protest and then edit it on Super 8 into this two minute or three minute piece and then project it the next week at the local community uh, meeting and people would see themselves up on the screen and they would say, look, there, there we are. And it would validate what their social action had been. And the next time out, there'd be more people. And so all of a sudden for me, I began to see that media could be utilized not just uh, as a, a way of educating people, but a way of activating people, a way of getting people out in the streets to, to see that the concerns that, that our community was experiencing and to have them take an active role in, in their lives. And that to me was magic. And that's what really convinced me that my future was going to be using media. What I love in your descriptions there, a literalization of the notion of community. You are in the community recording. They were in the community watching. I think that that sense of space that you've just painted for us, I think, is is really striking. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some specific Aura episodes then that you're contributing to the AAPB. Uh, There's one that's called uh, The Best of Aura, and uh, it shows some of the issues that we were dealing with at the time and the vociferousness, the... uh, the, the anger and the outrage that some of the community people felt and how they expressed themselves. And, and this was, again, another, another thing that they hadn't been allowed to do before, was to voice their anger at the injustices. And, and so this was, uh, Aura was a vehicle for that. Another clip is um, a, a portion of a clip from a documentary I did called La Raza Unida. Originally, La Raza Unida was produced uh, as part of the Acción Chicano series. Uh, we went to El Paso, Texas. Uh, we filmed the convention there. And during the convention, at the beginning of the convention, someone was shot and killed. People had gone. Uh, they had stopped to get water for their car that was overheating. And the owner of the gas station took offense to this and shot dead the guy who was using the water to cool his engine off. And that was the kind of justice that was going on at the time. And of course, uh, we were there and we filmed it. We recreated the moment. Uh, I was at the convention when there was a knock on the door and we opened the door and there's a young lady, her wardrobe drenched in blood uh, an hour uh, before her husband had been shot dead. And so these were the issues that we were covering with uh, Acción Chicano Uh, And again, it was reflective of being in the community and similar to, I discovered later, what was going on in New York with the Realidades program. And I remember my big surprise when I met Humberto Cintron, who was the producer of the Realidades program, and discovered that he was doing in New York what I was doing in Los Angeles that we were both utilizing public broadcasting to uh, be a voice box for our community and its concerns. And like my shows, uh, Umberto, through Realidades, was not just pinpointing problems, but was also pointing to some of the solutions and uh, being very topical about the the events of the day. I think both Realidades and Acción Chicano shared the fact that 
both the producers were intimately involved in their communities. We knew exactly what was going on every day, and we listened to our community, and we utilized the, the PBS broadcast platform as a way of sharing that reality with not just our own community, but with the rest of the world. Uh, the birth of Rally Lattice itself came from a picket line that the community posted outside of WNET uh, when WNET refused to produce a show that, that they had funded uh, reflective of the Puerto Rican community. Uh, it was a play and uh, they funded it and then they didn't want to put it on the air and the community was outraged. And this led to a series of meetings with the management of WNET that eventually gave birth to Realidades. But again, it came from people's struggle. Both shows came from the struggle of people not be, being willing to, to put up with what was being meted out to them and determined to have their voices heard. I love listening to these stories, especially with the backdrop of reminding people that this is pre-sharing, pre-likes, pre-hearts, pre-retweeting. And the sheer motivation of this was to inspire others to organize and to inspire others to show up. And I think that during this time also, there was this collective moment of wanting to be part of the larger public. So making sure PBS, making sure NPR, making sure all these community formats actually take everybody into account. Um, so there was a way in which we could rationalize why commercial may or may not you know, overlook communities of color, but at this time there was this insistence that we are a part of this public. Um, and those struggles kind of laid out in community media. Right. And this really seems, you know, I commented before on the notion of community and the literalization. And so here, the notion of public media, that seems absolutely crucial to, and in particular, a specific public, um, seems really important to this. Gabriella? So uh, I was listening to, to Mr. Trevino's uh, stories. And again, I was reminded of the importance of public broadcasting, because you have different communities in, in different parts of the nation that were doing similar things. And how those efforts are reflected and you kind of suddenly realize that, hey, somebody else in New York is doing the exact same thing that I'm doing. It's because there's a need for it. And it can help unite communities even if they are separated by, you know, distance. And I think that's that's beautiful thing about public broadcasting. Well, and also then you've played a role in archiving some of this and making this publicly available, which is really crucial. So I wonder if you could speak to the Latino empowerment exhibit that you worked on. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the uh, Latino Empowerment Exhibit is an upcoming online exhibit that will be available in AAPB's website. So to my knowledge, is the library's first bilingual online exhibit. It will be available in Spanish and English because we wanted it to be able to reach a, a broad audience. So our goal with the exhibit was to highlight the contributions that the Latino communities in the United States have made to public radio and public television, and also to examine how the uh, topics and interests of the Latino community have been covered in public broadcasting, uh, topics like education, housing, civil rights, workers' rights. So the exhibit is composed of audio and video films uh, from public radio and television uh, programs broadcast over the past half century, so from the 1950s up um, till the present. 
And so what aspects were you hoping to highlight with the exhibit? What are you, what are you hoping people really recognize that, that, that's in the collection? I think uh, some of the things I wanted to highlight with this uh, exhibit is that it can also be used as an educational tool that is available to the American public as a whole, not just specific to, to the Hispanic community, but to everyone so that everyone can learn about this, uh, this group that is so important to American history and has contributed so much. And like Mr. Trevino said, to validate those contributions with this collection was very, very important to me. So, uh, in fact, hopefully in the future, we can uh, add a guide for educators to get the most of it out of the classroom so that it can be used to teach Latino history in the United States. So the exhibit allows us to see how some topics and conversations of interest to the Latino community, uh, such as housing, bilingual education, uh, have been represented uh, in the media, but also how they have evolved during time. So we can see how, for instance, the conversation regarding bilingual education has evolved from the very first legislation about it to how we have it uh, today. Also, how public media brought those topics to the audience. So not all of the programs featured in the collection are directly directed only to the Hispanic community or audience, but they are also directed at, in a general audience. For instance, uh, the program Images uh, Imagines which is featured in the Voices of Descent section of the exhibit. Um, it is a multi-Emmy award-winning Latino television program that is still running today. Images uh, Imagines was born out of a need within the Hispanic community in New Jersey to tell its own stories and challenge negative stereotypes in media at the time. And the show's vision was to create informative programs in English and Spanish and to educate viewers on the history, the needs, the achievements, and the culture of diverse Latino communities in the United States. For instance, in 1980, they broadcasted a series of episodes about the housing crisis that was going on at the time. So, for example, Hispanic communities were being displaced from Atlantic City in 1979. So, in the clip that we will be featuring in this program, uh, they focused on telling everybody's side of the story from the community activists to the government officials to the public. And one of the things I would like to point out about that that speaks to the need to reach a wide audience, the uh, episode was actually, it had caps on it. So whenever they would speak in Spanish, they would have the translation in English. And whenever they would speak in English, they would have the translation in Spanish. Because of course, there's, there's that recognition that Latinos in the United States are not, like Mr. Chavino said, are not necessarily monolingual Spanish speakers. You know, they also speak English, but also they, it addresses that need to reach the American public as a whole. So here we have a, an instance of a program that was created by Latinos to respond to a need within the Latino community, but also to welcome a wider audience to get to know these communities. And we also have uh, examples from, for example, the PBS NewsHour collection. That is a program that was created by non-Latinos, but it also reaches uh, and includes a wide audience. And circling back to the importance of how these conversations have evolved over time, in 1978, the McNeil-Leher Report, which is one of the names that the PBS NewsHour had at the time, they have had several names over the years, 
they broadcasted a debate on bilingual education. And the main question of that debate was, is bilingual education necessary? It featured a former high school principal, the NYC Office of Bilingual Education at the time, uh, Mr. Herman LaFontaine, who was representing the NYC Office of Bilingual Education at the time, and Dr. Kay Jones, that was a representative from the University of New Mexico, along with the hosts of the show. And this was, to put it a little bit in context, this was in 1978. So this was 10 years after the Bilingual Education Act of 1968, uh, which it provided funding for high schools across the nation and schools across the nation to create programs that address the needs of English learners. And uh, for instance, they could take classes in history and science and math in their native language while they were also learning English. So this program has a debate over whether those type of programs of bilingual education are necessary or not. And the clip that you are going to see is referencing Mr. LaFontaine's argument against the notion that bilingual education doesn't work. So in that clip, he is giving a voice to the Hispanic community that is saying, hey, it is not necessary to choose whether you are Latino or whether you're American, you can be both, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. And the entire program is highly recommended because we are able to see arguments back in 1978 that are repeated that we can hear today if we have a, a discussion about bilingual education in the United States. Yeah, let's listen to the clip you're referencing here, Gabrielle. This is Herman LaFontaine representing New York City's Office of Bilingual Education and responding to a question about the validity of bilingual education. Dr. Hurwitz says bilingual education doesn't work, Mr. LaFontaine. Is he right or wrong? Well, it's clear that he's wrong. Not only has he again distorted the definition of bilingual education, he has also not read the report properly because I have a copy right here which says very clearly that both the control and the experimental group generally either maintained or improved their percentile ranks from pre-test to post-test. And I'm talking about English reading vocabulary tests. So I think a great deal of the publicity and the so-called attack on bilingual education has not only been misplaced but misinterpreted. I think uh, perhaps some of our critics and opponents ought to first read the evidence very carefully. And when you read the evidence very carefully, I think you begin to see that yes, there are areas of improvement as there would be in any innovative educational program. And I, for one, as many of our colleagues, would agree that we will do everything possible to improve the quality of our programs. But I don't think we can throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. Certainly, we have seen for many years in our own schools that our success in teaching reading to regular kids in regular programs is rather limited, both in reading and in math. Well, do we then turn around and say, let's not teach reading and mathematics anymore? Hardly. And yet, that's the kind of approach that we seem to hear from Dr. Hurwitz and other opponents who apparently aren't interested in looking at improving the program, but simply eliminating it as the only solution. I see bilingual education instead as a very viable educational approach to help youngsters who for many years traditional in the traditional program have been barred from a meaningful participation in the learning process and have therefore been pushed out, have dropped out, in general have been alienated not only from the school system but from society at large, leading primarily to frustration and failure. 
So I think that's one of the important aspects of this exhibit and why I think it's so relevant and personal to me uh, that I was able to work on this because the history of Latino communities in the United States is American history. It's part of who we are as, as a nation uh, and they help shape the country that we have today. And it is important for children uh, to be able to see themselves as agents of, of change and that their, their contributions and their parents' contributions and their community's contributions are recognized and that they matter. They're validated. They're part of what makes this country what it is. So the American public as a whole can benefit from the educational aspects of the exhibit and from knowing the amazing people that are featured in the exhibit and also uh, to allow a lot of young people that maybe are not necessarily aware of, of Axion Chicano, they may not necessarily be aware of images and imágenes, but this exhibit brings that closer to them and they're able to get to know this past generations and the work that has been done and continues to be done. That's very important. That's, the exhibit sounds really fascinating and I can't wait to, to get a look at it. And the word community has just resonated throughout each of your uh, conversations here. Um, but another word that came to mind when you were talking, Gabriella, was uh, connection and how important connection to the past, connection to different communities across and within communities is. And that um, especially that's resonating in my head because of the historical moment we're in right now uh, during a pandemic, still an ongoing pandemic. And so I wonder if maybe we could um, reflect on with some final thoughts here about what radio, what television, what uh, Latino, Latina media has meant to you, particularly public media to you all during this period of time. It seems to me that the advantage we have today is we have a lot of new generations of people that have now built on the kind of experiences that were going on in the late 60s and 70s and, and the 80s. And um, this sense of empowerment has, I believe, been handed over to subsequent generations. And it's not anything that we've forgotten. Um, and I think the importance of the AAPB is that it is a stronghold for us, a repository there, an archive for us to remember what started it all, but also to remind us as we go forward into the present and into the future, that uh, we are powerful, that our voice can be heard and needs to be heard, and that the Latino community uh, can and must step up and present itself in a way that it shares not only with other Latinos, but with America as a whole, with the greater America, the greater public broadcast audience, the greater American audience. I wanted to, to add to what Mr. Trevino just said that yes, it is in fact about community and connection. And for me, one of the important things about the AAPB and the Latino Empowerment Exhibit is that it allows us to get to know ourselves better by knowing the lives of other people before us and their efforts and their contributions. And something I, I realized when I was working on this collection is that preserving history, just like creating all these different public radio and public television programs is not the work of just one individual person. It is the job of many individuals working together towards a common goal. And I, and I think that sense of unity is something that we really, really need to highlight right now. 
when we come together to work towards something that matters to us, it is not only it does not only honor the effort that has been done before, but it also moves forward the needle even a little bit more. Um, I am very honored and very grateful to have been able to work on this exhibit and in whatever small part be able to contribute uh, for that message to keep going forward. Because as we saw with uh, Acción Chicano, with Realidades, with Imágenes, it is like a chain of creation. So something that happened before can inspire new works and new research to be done about these communities and about what matters to us. Yes, yeah, so what was that, what you had mentioned? You said the first time you went, you showed up to a rally with a Super 8. Is that what you said? Yeah, well, I, that's how I started. I, I was a, a student activist and um, I had a Super 8 camera and I would go to these events, with, like the picket lines, and I would be filming them. Right. And I always, I'm going to think about that a lot. I think when I teach and when we talk about the role of K-pop fans at Trump rallies or the role of Reddit, right, with the GameStop and the important conversations we have about body cams on police officers and all these conversations about media and surveillance and race and protests begins with talking about people who showed up at rallies with the Super 8, right? What was really interesting was I was one of the very few people there with a camera. Uh, there were maybe two or three other people on a picket line of maybe 200 people that had still cameras. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we were at a stage in the development of technology where it wasn't like everyone had an iPhone by any means. Right. So one, I'm thinking about that, about making the connections from modern day activism and thinking about that because of the pandemic, because it wasn't just a pandemic, right? But we've had a wave of activism across the country as well and new forms of way of thinking about maybe abolitionist type thinking when it talks about media and activism. But with the pandemic, and I was the first episode of Radio Bilingue, which aired in July 4th, 1980, also in our wonderful AAPB collection. It's a 20, 28 minute segment. And towards the end, they decide to end the segment playing a song about a strike, La Una Huelga. And they're singing and you hear people singing along. And it's moments like that that I thought, listening to it, I'm like, I'm by myself, I'm in my office, I'm listening to this, but I don't feel alone. Right. And if anything, I feel inspired because I'm listening to people singing and I'm listening to people sing along. And I think that during the pandemic, when we had so much physical distancing, when we had social distancing encouraged, this was a time when people tuned to radio so that we would have a moment to sing along. And so that was one aspect of it. And the second aspect of it was just to send information this sense of getting something, again, from a trusted source that we knew, knowing exactly where to get a COVID test, how to detect symptoms, when to go to work, how to go to work. And I remember this Washington Post reporter called me last year and wanted a quote because, wow, all these people, there's the listenership is going up on Spanish language radio. So I'm writing a story about how that's because everyone's staying home. And I said, actually, listenership is going up on Spanish language radio because everyone's going to work. Like, these are our essential workers. That's why it's going up. We have more people doing Grubhub and DoorDash and all these other essential workers during the pandemic. We are listening to the pandemic economy. This is why it's going up. 
so that the rest of us could stay home, right? So there's something about distance and intimacy and labor and workers that is reminding me that's making these links and activism between the AAPB and our pandemic moment. And that also speaks to the importance of, for instance, diversity in newsrooms, of exactly. understanding communities and reaching out and, and trying to learn that those those histories, learn those realities. And particularly, again, throughout what each of you have all said, the importance of the everyday and how much radio and television are with us in our rhythms of everyday life. And that could be very different across different communities and different publics. So um, I'm grateful that we have the AAPB collection to uh, particularly take us through some of those stories and some of those everyday lives and the importance of radio and television uh, in our everyday lives. Right. Thank you, Chris. Thank you all for joining the podcast. It's a really fascinating conversation. I'm excited now to uh, to guide our listeners to more information and more uh, to watch and listen to on the AAPB website. So thank you to Inez, Gabriela, and Jesus for your fascinating conversation today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And thank you all listeners for listening to part one of our focus on Latino empowerment. You can access the clips and programs discussed in this conversation in the Latino empowerment exhibit at AmericanArchive.org. And you can now move on to part two of this month's podcast featuring my interview with Radio Bilingue founder, Hugo Morales. 